in this uh, little series that we're working our way through Matthew 11 to 13 where, as I said to the kids before, we're looking at the idea of Jesus being the king of the kingdom of heaven. And we've seen that Jesus is fairly surprising. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm not saying anything that you don't know, but there are lots of funny ideas out there about Jesus. Lots of different opinions about Jesus. And uh, if we wanted any evidence of confusion about Jesus, you just have to look at how Jesus appears on T-shirts. There's lots of different ways you could find out evidence of confusion about Jesus, but I'm suggesting T-shirts might be a good one. So let me show you a very small sample of uh, Jesus' T-shirts, and I'm I'm really just uh, scraping the top here of a very deep uh, pool. So um, some images of Jesus that we find on genuine uh, T-shirts. Firstly, there's heavy metal Jesus. Uh, Secondly, there's soccer Jesus. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Thirdly, you could have hip and cool Jesus. Uh, Fourthly, you could have Jewish Jesus. Uh, Fifthly, you could have homeboy Jesus. My personal favourite, number six, Jedi Jesus. (laughs) Or uh, number seven would be rock star Jesus. So there's a bit of a montage on that T-shirt, all these famous sort of, uh, well, I think they're famous, 70s and 80s rockers, and somewhere in there is Jesus. Uh, Revolutionary Jesus would be another one. And uh, maybe a favourite, superhero Jesus. Now, that's a very small sample, okay, of the way people, different people have tried to categorise Jesus onto a a T-shirt. Lots of confusion about Jesus. I can understand it in part because you don't have to read much of the biographies of Jesus, the historical accounts of Jesus in the Bible. You don't have to read many of those before you, you discover that Jesus is a complex person. Jesus is very hard to put into a box, Uh, Jesus is very hard to categorise in that way. But it's very, very important, isn't it, surely, that we make sure that we understand who the real Jesus is. You look at those T-shirts and you think, well, will the real Jesus stand up? Which one is he? And so as we've been working our way through Matthew 11 to 13, the question we keep pondering is, if this is the real Jesus, the real Jesus in the historical account, this is the real Jesus, if this is the real Jesus, the question then becomes... Have we made the right response to him? So we keep discovering Jesus in the Bible, the real Jesus. The question is, have we made the right response to him? If you remember from last time, if you were here, at the end of our passage in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus was praising his father for hiding the truth about his identity and his ministry from certain people. And he was praising his father for revealing it to others. If uh, you want to look, it's there in chapter 11 and verse 25. The truth about Jesus being the king of the kingdom of heaven is hidden, we read, from the so-called wise and learned, and it's revealed instead to little children. We thought about this last time, people who are aware of their own dependency, people who are prepared to humble themselves and be recipients of mercy to them, people who are like little children, to them the king of the kingdom of heaven is revealed. That's where we left the story last time, with Jesus inviting the people of his generation and even the people of, of our generation here today, tonight, Jesus inviting them to become one of his children. And in our passage tonight, we see once more the hiddenness and the revealing 
of Jesus. And so on your outline, if you're looking there, um, I've divided our passage up under those two headings. In the first bit of our passage, okay, we see Jesus the king hidden from the wise and the learned, in this case the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And in the second bit of our passage, we see the king revealed to the humble and to the hurting. We need to make sure we grasp the real Jesus so as we respond rightly to him. That's our task tonight. So make sure you have your Bible open there, Matthew 12, because we're going to look at it really closely. That outline will hopefully be helpful to you too. Let's pray, because if it's the Father who reveals the truth, we want to ask that he would do that for us even tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one who reveals the truth of Jesus. And we want to know that truth. And we want to respond rightly to it. And so, Father, we, we thank you for the chance to think about this most remarkable of men, this King, your Son. And, Father, we pray that as we read and think together, uh, just that you'd really help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point one on your outline. And uh, let's have a look at Matthew chapter 12 and verse 1. Uh, let, me, uh, let me read. Matthew 12 and verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. Okay, it's a nice setting for the events that are described. It's a grain field. You can imagine Jesus with his disciples just walking and there's the wheat around them. Uh, the grain is there. It's on the Sabbath, which is important. Uh, the Sabbath was the, the uh, last day of the week, the seventh day of the week. And under the old covenant, which uh, governed the people of Israel, from the time of the Ten Commandments on, really, the Sabbath was to be a day of rest from work. And so in the Old Testament, you can find lots of prescriptions about the Sabbath. Because the Lord rested from his work of creation on the seventh day, so should his people. Because the Lord rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, he commands them to observe the Sabbath rest. I think it's very interesting and significant that immediately after Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 um, talks about his promise of rest, remember Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, it's that wonderful promise of Jesus of rest to those who would come to him. It's very interesting and very significant that immediately after that in these next verses that Matthew records for us, Jesus is challenged about rest. And he's challenged by people who would have been considered wise and learned, and they certainly would have considered themselves wise and learned. The Pharisees, okay, were very, very, very serious about keeping the law of God. The word Pharisee means separated, and they certainly worked very hard at being separated from any violation of the law of God. In fact, at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had devised a whole series of lesser laws to stop people getting anywhere near the actual law of God in the scripture. It was almost like they'd created in laws these sort of safety fences that you couldn't get through because they wanted to stop people getting anywhere near the actual law of God. And so when it comes to you know, not working, they had come up with some 39 regulations about what constituted work on the Sabbath. So, for example, there was a certain distance that you could walk from home on the Sabbath, but if you walked, walked further than that, then that was work and therefore forbidden. It's not in the Bible. They invented these new rules as sort of safety fences. 
It all sounds really impressive, really impressive, except that Jesus was not impressed. In fact, later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus actually pronounces what's called seven woes on the Pharisees, seven judgments on the Pharisees. You can look it up later in chapter 23. It's there on your outline. Jesus actually accused these guys of sitting in the seat of Moses, the one whom God gave the law to. He accused the Pharisees of sitting in Moses' seat and forcing people to obey everything they told them and yet not practicing it themselves. Jesus accused them of tying heavy loads and putting them on men's shoulders and yet not being willing to lift even a finger to move them. You think about the context from last week, the yoke of the Pharisees was very heavy and very burdensome. Remember Jesus' yoke from chapter 11? It's easy and light. Lots of connections between last week and tonight, okay? And here in these verses we get a sense of the heavy yoke of the Pharisees. Okay, they've seen Jesus' disciples. They're just walking through the field. You can imagine it. Uh, they sort of, they're hungry, trail their fingers through the grain, pluck some, crush it, and eat it. And they say, look, your disciples are doing what is lawful, unlawful, sorry, on the Sabbath. You get the feeling they're almost watching, looking out for a moment. Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Come on, Jesus, your disciples are lawbreakers. God's lawbreakers. And if you let them do it, then you're a lawbreaker as well. It's an incredibly serious accusation. It reveals just how hidden the reality of Jesus the King was from these so-called wise and learned people. Check out Jesus' reply. Jesus reminds them, he reminds these wise and learned men of two instances in the Old Testament. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did? When he and his companions were hungry, he entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? Two instances from the Old Testament. We're going to jump back to the Old Testament a few times tonight. It's a common thing in Matthew, but this time Jesus is referring to two instances from the Old Testament. The first, if you look at it in verse 3 and 4, involves people eating bread. That's the connection. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's a passage we looked at in evening church a little while ago. I won't ask you if you remember. David's companions, okay, back there in 1 Samuel 21, they ate holy bread in the house of the Lord. And here's the thing. David and his companions were not condemned. In fact... It was the priest who gave them the bread. See the link with what's happened with Jesus and his disciples? Eating that bread back there, David and his disciples, eating that bread might have been regarded as unlawful, but in that case it wasn't. The second instance involves the Sabbath directly. And Jesus reminds the the Pharisees, the priests themselves work on the Sabbath in the temple. They desecrate the day. And yet... They are innocent. So again, something that might be regarded as unlawful, but isn't. Now the Pharisees, I reckon, might have been thinking as Jesus replied, well, hang on, this doesn't mean anything. That's nothing. That was David you're talking about. He had already been anointed the king. He was on the run from Saul. That was different. And the priests, I mean, they're serving in the temple. That's different too. But check out Jesus' punchline. Verse 6. Jesus said, I tell you that one greater than the temple 
is here. If this was like a cartoon or one of those old Batman uh, uh, TV shows, there'd be a big kapow on the screen right now because that's a massive statement, friends. Kapow. One greater than the temple is here. Jesus, he doesn't take the Pharisees on about their understanding of the Sabbath. He's going to in a moment, but he doesn't start there. He starts by taking them on about their understanding of him. He is greater than the temple. The temple, you see, symbolised the sovereignty of God in the midst of his people. The temple symbolised the reign of God in the midst of his people. But Jesus embodied it. Jesus is God with us. Jesus was almost sort of a walking, talking temple. He is greater than the temple. And when it comes to David, well, Jesus is King David's greatest son. He's in the family tree, but he outshines his ancestor in, you know, infinitely. And if David and his companions could have eaten the bread just because David was the anointed king, well, how much more so Jesus? In the family line, he is the greatest of the descendants. He's been anointed at his baptism by the, no less than the Holy Spirit. He is the king of kings. He is the one David only just anticipated. See, the Pharisees were blind to the truth of Jesus. They were taking on Jesus about eating grain on the Sabbath when they should have fallen at his feet in awe. They prided themselves on their wisdom and their their learning, but the king of the kingdom of heaven was standing right in front of them and they couldn't see him. They couldn't see him. They were blinded by their pride and their arrogance and so Jesus rebukes them. Verse 7, he says, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus takes them back to the Old Testament, their scriptures. And this time to a words of the prophet from Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. Really interestingly, Jesus quotes the same verse to the Pharisees back in chapter 9 of Matthew. And back in chapter 9, he said to them after quoting it, go and learn what these words mean. And here we are in chapter 12, they obviously haven't. And Jesus quotes it to them again. I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. Back in Hosea chapter 6, it's the Lord speaking to his people back there and then in judgment. Because back there and then, they were great at offering sacrifices. They were great at doing the religious thing, but their hearts were hardened towards God. Their religion was like an empty shell without any love or compassion or mercy, which is completely ridiculous because the Lord himself is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and mercy. And so through Hosea back there and then, the Lord demanded from his people mercy more than sacrifice. And here in Matthew, Jesus demands the same of the Pharisees. He demands that in their zeal to keep the law, they understand who the law, where the law came from, from whom the law came. And rather than using the law as a weapon to accuse, they should have been men of mercy and love. And they should have recognized that the one they accuse of breaking the Sabbath law is, in, is himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He rules it. He's the king of the kingdom of heaven. He's greater than the temple. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the king of the kingdom of heaven. And yet they are blind to that truth. It is hidden from them, even though they are wise and learned and very religious. And we can see just how hidden it is from them in the next encounter that Matthew records for us. We move from the grain field 
to inside a synagogue. Verse 9. Let me read. Going on from that place, he went into, a, into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They've learned nothing, have they? According to them, they have nothing to learn, okay, from this Galilean upstart because they're the wise and the learned ones. And so they ask Jesus a question. Notice, though, what Matthew tells us. It's not a question to discover the truth. It's a question to accuse him. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus has just reminded them of the importance of mercy, of how much God desires mercy. And here before Jesus is a man with a shriveled hand. But Jesus answers them, doesn't he? Fully aware of their intent, fully aware of their clever trap. He asked them, what would you do if one of your sheep fell into a pit on the Sabbath? Would you leave it to die or would you rescue it? Now, I know some of you sheep farmers would think that's a tough choice. (laughs) But regardless of how stupid sheep are and how crazy they drive their farmers, the answer is obvious, isn't it? Jesus obviously knows that even the Pharisees would do something in that situation to rescue the sheep. They would do that work on the Sabbath and they would not consider it unlawful. And so then he delivers his next kapow, his next punch. Verse 12, he says to them, without them even answering, he knows their answer. He says, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Can I say, folks, how terrible must it is it that Jesus would have to pass that truth on to the teachers of Israel? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's shameful they need to be told that. God desires mercy more than sacrifice. Of course it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. What were they thinking? They were hypocrites who in their study of the law, in their study of the word of God, had neglected the heart of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so later on in this gospel, Matthew's account, Jesus calls these guys blind guides who strain out a flea but swallow a camel. They strain out a flea but they swallow a camel. They miss the biggest things. And can I say, folks, religion is so often like that. Religion is so often like that. Religious people are so often like that. Even religious people who claim to be with Jesus. So often the religion in Jesus' name is such a long, long way from the heart of Jesus, from the ministry of Jesus. It's incredible to me that even today there are churches bearing the name Christian who have incredibly intricate laws about what you can and cannot do on particular days and so often love and mercy are lost in the enforcing of those rules. And it's all in the name of religion. Religion is so often self-serving. It misses the most important things. But folks, I've got to warn you, there is something in us instinctively attracted to religion instinctively attractive to self-serving, self-saving rules. And we've got to be very careful to be on guard against it. Very careful that as evening church, bearing the name of Jesus, that we are true to the heart of Jesus, true to the ministry of Jesus. Because the real Jesus is not religious Jesus. If you come here tonight and you think the real Jesus is religious Jesus, that's not right. 
have a look. Real Jesus is not religious Jesus. He is not religious rule-keeping Jesus. He is nothing like the Pharisees. They needed to be told that it was better to help this man with the shriveled hand than it was to rescue a sheep. They needed to be told that it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so Jesus, the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, the Lord of the Sabbath, he did good. The man who'd been waiting while this debate was going on around him, he's just standing there, I guess, with his shriveled hand. Jesus said to the man, verse 13, can you see it? Jesus says, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Just as sound as the other. That's incredible, don't you reckon? I, I think maybe we get so used to Jesus' healing that we lose sight of how extraordinary and wonderful it is. A shriveled hand, hold it out, it's restored. Imagine that. Incredible. Just like that it was restored. Because Jesus, you see, is the king of the kingdom of heaven and he is merciful and powerful, but merciful. But that truth seems to be hidden from the Pharisees. And there could be no greater demonstration of their blindness than their response in verse 14. Check it out, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Is that not an incredible sentence? What an incredible decision by men so concerned with keeping the law of God. What an incredible decision for men so concerned a moment ago that Jesus not do what was unlawful. They went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. It's just terrible. And as Matthew's gospel unfolds, we see the plot of the Pharisees unfold. And you should read ahead. But I need to tell you, you know, that as the Pharisees' plot unfolds, there is already a greater plot unfolding, of course. This is a plot in which the Pharisees themselves are unknowing players. This is a plot of literally eternal dimensions. This is a plot that will use the evil of the Pharisees for the good of all creation. This is a plot that will actually bring true eternal Sabbath rest. It's, of course, the plot written by God himself from before the beginning of creation. It's a plot that has been literally unfolding for centuries past. It's a plot in which the starring role is played by Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. And we are reminded of that plot in the verses that follow. So let's have a look. Point two and verse 15. Verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. Jesus withdraws. He is aware of the plot of the Pharisees and so he withdraws. Please notice, not out of cowardice, not because he fears the Pharisees, but he withdraws because Jesus is being faithful to the greater plot of his Father in heaven. And he knows that according to that plot, the time has not yet come for him to die. And so he withdraws. And although the wise and the learned Pharisees had rejected Jesus in the most forceful of manners, did you notice there were many, many who did not? There were many who heeded 
King Jesus' call to come to him and find rest for their souls. Can you see them there in verse 15? The hurting and the hopeless, the sick and the sad. Those who realise that they need help beyond themselves. Those who realise they could not save themselves. Those who saw in Jesus someone greater, someone better than the empty religion of the Pharisees. They follow Jesus. And Jesus healed all their sick. Friends, can I say it's still that way even today, even tonight even. It's still true that the wise and the learned reject Jesus. It's still true that the sick and the sad and the hurting and the hopeless follow Jesus. If you don't believe me, look around the room. Look at us. Not many here wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many of high society. It's why, church, it's why church families are always such awkward communities. Because we're such losers. <laughs> On our own. I'm talking about myself, John. <laughs> the sick and the sad, the hurting and the hopeless. Little children. Coming to Jesus to find rest for their souls. And it's all according to the greater plot of the Father of Jesus. See, God chooses to reveal the truth of Jesus to the weak and the lowly and the despised. Elsewhere in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, it says the Bible, uh, it says, sorry, that God chooses the things, talking about people, God chooses the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And he does it that we might not boast in ourselves. He does it that we might not boast in the fact that, hey, God chose me. He, He does it so that we might not boast that I was good enough for God. He does it so that our, the boast, our hope, our boast, our hope would be entirely in the Lord, in Jesus, our King, who is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. It's all according to the plot of the Father, the plan of the Father. And so Matthew reminds us of that, of that plot, that plan in verse 17. Let me show it to you. Verse 17, Matthew says, all of this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So he takes us back again to the Old Testament. And he's quoting from Isaiah, he says, Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. It's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah is a book that's often quoted in Matthew's Gospel. It's a really important book in the Old Testament. And Isaiah chapter 42 is the first of what are, what are sometimes called the servant songs, the servant songs in Isaiah. Um, they're called the servant songs. They're in Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50 and 53. And they're called the servant songs because through Isaiah, the prophet, the Lord promises this one who will come and he will be a servant. And as you can see from the quotation there in chapter 12 and verse 18, this servant will be the delight of the Lord. He'll be, he'll be the beloved of the Lord. He will bear the spirit of the Lord. He'll be equipped to do the Lord's bidding. And the Lord's bidding is that through this servant, justice will be proclaimed to the nations. In other words, righteousness. In other words, God's kingdom. In other words, God's way. Justice will be proclaimed to the nations, to the world. And if you've got your thinking cap on, 
and your brain's still working, you might remember that these words sound really familiar to some words that were spoken of Jesus at his baptism. At Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love, my beloved. With him I'm well pleased. It was the father revealing the truth about Jesus. Here is my son. He is the Christ. He has come as my servant, the servant of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. The terrible irony, of course, is that the Pharisees thought they were protecting righteousness. But instead, isn't it terrible? They were plotting the death of the very one whom the Lord had given the task of bringing his righteousness in. And not just to Israel, but to the whole world, even to Dubbo. To all the nations. And regardless of the Pharisees' opposition and their plotting, he will succeed. Verse 19. Verse 19. Still speaking about the servant, still quoting from Isaiah 42. Talking about the servant, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. You look at verse 19 and verse 20 there. He seems like a wuss, a wimp. He'll not quarrel. He'll not cry out. He won't hear his voice in the streets. He won't even break a bruised reed, which are so frail, a smoldering wick. You know, he's not even going to snuff that out. Because as we've been seeing, Jesus comes as such a surprising king. He didn't come with pomp and ceremony. He was born into an obscure family and into an obscure part of the world. He was a carpenter. He chose as the core of his followers men who were fishermen and tax collectors, uneducated men. Simple men. Even in the face of the opposition of the Pharisees, he quietly withdraws. He doesn't quarrel. He doesn't cry out. He doesn't take them on. He is gentle. He is humble in heart. He is a surprising king because he is following the plan of his father. He is pursuing the path of gentleness and humility. It's all laid out in Isaiah, all laid out in those servant servant songs. And you know what? According to Isaiah, a prophecy written hundreds of years earlier... The servant would be despised and rejected. The servant would take upon himself the sorrow and the sins of his people. The servant would be pierced for their transgressions. The servant would be punished for their sins. All so that the servant might win for his people peace and rest and forgiveness. And that is exactly the path that Jesus the servant king followed. We can see it here in Matthew 12. You keep reading the story, you'll see he follows it to the very end. Without quarrel or crying out, Jesus the king allowed himself at just the right time, just the right time according to the plan of his father, to die. To die for his people. He allowed himself to bear the sin of his people that his people might not have to face that judgment for themselves. He died for sick and sad and hurting and hopeless people. And through his death and his resurrection, he brought victory and righteousness and hope. And you know what? Every time, every time that Jesus healed someone physically in his ministry, just like here in our passage, it was always an anticipation of a far greater healing that would reach out across the nations and would reach deep into people's hearts. A healing even of sin. Now that's rest. That's healing. 
I'm sure the guy with the shriveled hand was rejoicing that he had his hand back. But I really hope he followed Jesus to the end and knew that Jesus could heal him even of his sin. Because he can. And even now, you know, as we wait for King Jesus to bring in fully and finally the rest he has promised, it's a new creation. And in that time, there'll be no more sickness and no more sorrow and no more sin and no more death. That's rest. And even now we wait for King Jesus to bring in righteousness fully and finally. We we wait for him to make it so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he will. He really will. He's already won the victory in his death and resurrection. The work has been done. And now you see he invites people to come to him and join in that victory, to rejoice with him in that victory. Because when he returns, he will bring in his kingdom full and forever, our king, our servant king. That's the real Jesus. You can't put that on a T-shirt. It's too big. The real Jesus. Which means you need to think about, that's the real Jesus. Have I made the right response to him? Because I've got to tell you, he's a wonderful king. And it's a joy to serve him. And the right response is to do what he says. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, burdened with sin and guilt, weary of life. He says, I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's not too, late to, not too late even tonight, folks, to answer that call. And even if you have answered that call at some point, we need to keep coming back to Jesus, don't we? In thanksgiving and humility and say, Jesus, I'm so glad you're my servant king. I want to follow you with everything I have. Because any other life would be less than that life. Any life other than following Jesus as king will be less It'll always be less. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one who reveals the truth about Jesus. And so, Father, we just want to ask that you'd help us to wrestle with these things carefully and prayerfully and seriously. Father, we we want our response to Jesus to be the right one. We thank you, Father, for his humility, his gentleness, his power, his mercy. We thank you, Father, that he is unlike any king that we might meet on this earth. So much better. So much more powerful. We thank you, Father, that he was willing to lay down even his life as our servant king. Father, we, we, we love the call, the promise he offers of rest for our souls. And we ask you to help us to believe the promise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.